everyone. Welcome to Podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host, and I am joined here again by Marion. Hello, Marion. Hello. Is this your third appearance on the podcast? I think that's right. Yeah. So you've uh, you've now pulled neck and neck with Tina. It's good company to be in. Yes. Um, and so I'm foregoing the usual introduction that I record separately to preface the... Uh, con- because we're going to be having a conversation here about... A book that we wrote together, so it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult for any one of us to be the interviewer of the other. So this episode is going to have a sort of two-part um, structure to it. We're going to talk a little bit about the book, and because this is a particular type of book, which we decided, in the broadest sense, is a revisionist book. It it changes something uh, possibly important. I don't know. It depends on what kind of history you work on. Um, then we're going to talk about revisionism in general and different kinds of revisionism and our experience of it and, and how the field practices it and so forth. So, Marin, why don't you start us off by telling us what briefly the thesis of our book is? In the briefest possible terms, because there are a lot of subordinate arguments that go into this, um, if you look at the military history of late antiquity, there has been a long-standing consensus that around 395 or shortly thereafter, so shortly after the death of Theodosius I, in the East Roman Empire, you have a five-army system. And these are the field armies, the sort of primary marching, fighting, campaigning armies of the empire, broken up into five subordinate armies, uh, one for the Western Balkans, the army of Illyricum, one for the Eastern Balkans, the army of Thrace, one for the Eastern Frontier, the Army of Oriens, and then two presental armies, that is armies that are presumably guarding the capital in some way, although we don't actually have and, and never had firm details on where they actually were, what they did. But these are armies of the emperor's presence, probably d- designed or intended to be guarding the approaches to Constantinople in some capacity. So there are five armies in this configuration. And the idea is that this lasted more or less up until the reign of Heraclius, at which point a lot of bad things happen, the system is put under pressure and has to be reformed, and that over the course of Heraclius's reign, what we see is the foundation or the sort of um, foundations being laid for the transition to the Byzantine thematic armies. So some of the later armies that are created, uh, like the Army of Armenia, uh, gets turned into the Armenia Khan, the army of Oriens gets turned into the Anatolikon, that kind of stuff. That's beyond the scope of our book. Essentially, what we're looking at is that five army system that's meant to be in place for several centuries and arguing that, in fact, it wasn't. So it wasn't created in 395. It was probably created in the 440s, likely in response to the pressures put on the East Roman Empire by the Huns, and that it was already coming apart by the reign of Anastasius, so late 5th, early 6th century, and fully dismantled uh, in order to sort of fund or fuel the wars of Justinian uh, through the mid-6th century, such that it, it was no longer in place by the second half of the 6th century, and Heraclius was working with a very different framework when he you know, launched his campaigns against Persia um, in, the, in the early 7th century. Right. Not fully dismantled. I, you know, maybe about half dismantled. Um, so they, yeah, they keep the, um, you know, Illyricum and Thrace armies, but the Presidential armies get um, broken up and dispersed. And we argue that this is where Justinian's, um, sort of, I don't want to call them occupation armies necessarily, but the armies of conquest in Italy and North Africa and Armenia, that they come from there. And so the system changes. So one of the um, well, you could you could call it a conclusion to which we come, but it's also in a certain way one of our guiding assumptions is that this system is subject to change as strategic priorities um, evolve, and that it would be unreasonable to expect otherwise. Right. And you can see that, I think, clearly, if you look at the geography of the system that was supposed to be in place, where the Balkans have two field armies and the entire eastern frontier from Arabia to the Caucasus has a single army, which is located in Syria. Right. So viewed on that in that sort of geographical lens, the creation of the army of Armenia by Justinian makes perfect sense. And you wouldn't expect that to be a kind of Uh, aberration. You wouldn't expect the system to have been designed to guard the entire eastern frontier. 
Right. So let's walk through the process by which we arrived at this conclusion. And um, possibly the conclusion is a little more revisionist or radical than we're making it seem. And, and you would have realized this by now if you were sort of actively engaged in research on the late Roman armies. Um, this will become a bit clearer, especially in relationship to this notorious document called the Notitia Dignitatum, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but we actually arrived at that document last. Uh, so we thought it would be interesting to walk you all uh, through the process by which we arrived at this conclusion and, and how our work proceeded, right? So I think the first step was when I was writing the general history of Byzantium that I've been working on for six or seven possibly longer years now. And I began to wonder where the presental armies were, not physically, but they just wouldn't appear in sources where you expect them to appear. L let me clarify that for each of these armies, we postulate um, a notional strength of between 17 and 20,000 soldiers. And sometimes they appear in the sources with that many people. It's fairly consistent and fairly reliable. And so historians uh, don't have any problem assuming that these armies have tops, 20,000 men in them, and we don't really contest that, uh, at least not for most of this period. So if there are two presidential armies with 20,000 people, 20,000 soldiers each, where are those when like Constantinople becomes threatened in the sixth century? And so like they never appear. And so I was beginning to wonder, like, can we write a history of the presidential armies? Where are they? What are they doing? And I think at that point, I kicked it to you and I said, hey, Marion, why don't you do what? Yeah, so I actually remember this very distinctly. We had gone to a conference together in Skopje, uh, and this is why conferences are important, less so for the papers given and more for the conversations that happen around them. And we were flying back and sitting next to each other. And I had given a paper on Vitalianos, who's a rebel against Anastasius in the late 5th century. And I had gone through all the sources for this, and they were in my head. And you asked me if at any point a presidential army had been mentioned. And the answer was no. There was no clear indication that a presidential army was used against a rebel in the Balkans who made uh, marches on Constantinople, right? So that's a really you know, flagrant gap in what we would expect these 40,000 troops to be doing. And so, yeah, then the problem became, can we find these armies? And the project originated, as you said, as a as a search for the presidential armies, almost as like a battle history of the presidential armies. Like, what were they doing? How were they configured? What was their actual job and work in the empire? Um, because they were not in the frontiers, right? And that's a 40,000 troops out of a total number of something like 100,000, right? That's, you know, two out of five armies that aren't doing stuff most of the time. They aren't on the frontier. They're not within striking range of the border. All right. Um, so it turns out that our sources are pretty bad at letting us locate armies and much better at letting us locate office holders. So oftentimes we don't actually know what army is being led from one place to another. Some sources are very good about this. Procopius in particular tends to be pretty detailed. There's a fragmentary historian named Malchus who's also really good, but a lot of them just say an army goes somewhere and does a thing, and we don't really know which army. But we're better at nailing down, because of laws and other sources like that, who held different positions. So who, for instance, was the magister militum, that is the master of soldiers, which is the general in charge of these various armies. So it's the magister militum presentalis, that's the master of soldiers, the general in charge of the presental army. So I went down a kind of prosopographical rabbit hole, uh, derailed by COVID. So to give you a sense of the time frame here, a full year got lost on this project because of COVID. And at the far side of that, I went down this prosopographical rabbit hole trying to figure out who the presidential generals were to help me identify and locate the presidential armies. And what I found is that the prosopography, that is these this big, massive reconstruction of office holders in the Roman Empire, kept asserting that people were presidential generals on incredibly thin evidence. Um, so basically, if there wasn't a presidential general that we knew of for a given time period, and any magister militum whatsoever is attested being in Constantinople, that person is simply assumed to be the magister militum presentalis, right? So the, the commander of the general of the presidential armies. And this creates problems because there are still gaps where none seem to have been appointed. And then there are times when, well, there are three or four or five people, who, generals attested. And so the question becomes, 
Uh, as, and some scholars have argued that what we see is actually more presidential armies being created. So there's one scholar who argues that there's a third presidential army created under Justinian um, or, you know, either that or we have duplicative offices and there's no real way of determining which one of these people was actually in charge. And when I began to pull on this thread, other things began to unravel because by the same token, a lot of the other uh, magisters so for Thrace and for Illyricum and even for Oriens, were sort of identified on a similarly loose logic where, well, we don't know, no one calls them this, they're called something else, but they're a general and they're campaigning roughly in the area of Thrace, therefore they have to be the Magister Militum of Thrace. So there was a pretty weak edifice here that seemed to have been reverse engineered from this document, the Notitia, right? So people had assumed this five army structure was in place. And then it just became a problem because they assumed it was in place. It had to be there of identifying the generals. And the presumption was that someone had to be holding all of these offices throughout this entire period. And so very slight evidence was used to confidently identify these generals. Right. So let me just explain that the Notitia is a list of offices in the late Roman state. And very usefully for our purposes, it lists the five armies and all of the units under their commands. And there's this assumption that this five army system had been in place since the 390s. And so all subsequently attested office holders had to be fitted into that system one way or another, even if the sources mentioning those office holders did not ascribe to them those offices, right? So you're exactly right that the system is reverse engineered. The prosopographies want to make the system work as if it's reflecting the notitia. And meanwhile, scholarship on the notitia is drawing on the prosopographies, right, to fill out studies of the notitia. And so it's perfectly circular reverse engineering. So at that point, we decided that we needed a clear methodological priority, right? And the clear methodological priority that we decided on was that the external evidence takes precedence over the notitia because the date of the notitia cannot be dated in any satisfactory way. Yeah, Yeah. This is one of the most disastrous sources that you've ever come across, both in terms of the role that it's been given. And there are good historiographical reasons for this because it's basically an org chart for the entire yes. East Roman Empire. And it comes from kind of the same moment as the Theodosian Code, so this big compilation of laws. And so the classic treatment of the late Roman administration, A.H.M. Jones's uh, later Roman Empire, basically used these two founding documents or what it understood to be these founding documents to reconstruct the function and history of the entire East Roman administrative apparatus, including the military administration. Um, and so... It is ingrained in scholarship in this incredible way, despite the fact that we don't know when it was written, no clear evidence for that. And for the record, we don't even claim that we know when it was written. We certainly don't know why it was written. We don't know how it traveled around. We don't know how the two halves, because there's an eastern half and a western half, came together or why they were put together. And our earliest manuscripts of it go back to um, an 8th century um, manuscript. So we can't even trace its, its sort of history in the manuscripts back past the 8th century AD, which is obviously long after any of this information was relevant uh, in either the East or the West. So it's a real, it's definitely a rabbit hole document, right? It's yeah. it's a it's a lotus eater document. You just will end up being stuck on the Natitia if you let yourself get stuck on it. Yes. So we decided that we would reconstruct the history of the Eastern field armies using all the other evidence first. And it turned out that that evidence is remarkably consistent in the story that it tells and disregard any of the coloring of that evidence that has been imposed on it by using the Notitia. And that we would then see what point in this process of long organizational change the Notitia reflects. And we found that it uh, in the East, it reflects a, a very well, comparatively narrow window between the 440s and maybe 480s, 490s tops. And, and so that's the picture that it, uh, it's, it's, it's a snapshot of the organization of the Eastern Empire at that time. Um, and so then we were led even earlier to trace this story. So we were moving backwards in time, right? 
uh, to the late fourth century, the second half of the fourth century, um, where we did the same thing, sort of disregarding the notitia and then seeing where it fit. And it turns out that the history of offices and armies in the East is very, very different from the model um, that 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 historians um, reconstructed based on the notitia. And so we ended up with a book um, whose title I, I, we haven't given yet, so I should do that. It's called The Field Armies of the East Roman Empire, 361 to 630, uh, where we, we tell that story, but not in reverse chronological order. We actually tell it in proper order. Um, and of course, it led us down into the notitia, and we had to make an argument that not about its dating, but um, that there's nothing that we know about the notitia that pre prevents us from putting it in the period that we do. And you did a lot of the work on that. Um, so that's roughly the argument and the methodology and how we wrote it. Though th there, you know, there's some interesting aspects about the the, the way we actually wrote it, uh, which was what in the summer of twenty one. Yeah, summer of 2021. Where I think we just banged the thing out in a pretty much over the course of two months. Yeah, I, I describe it sometimes as relay writing because yes. you were in Greece. So I would I would write during the day and sort of send you what I had at the end of the day. And then you would write during your day and then send it back to me. And Right, because I would, by the, when I got up, you were just about finishing your late night revisions and sending me the document. And I'd pick it up and work on it for you know, seven or eight, nine hours, then send it to you and you would pick it up like that. It was, it was great. It was a very interesting experience, I got to say, as a just as an authorial uh, experience. It's um, also, for the record, and for anyone who enjoys the study of history, it's, it's a lot of fun to be on the trail of something that feels this productive. Yeah. Uh, there is definitely a sense of, uh, I think, both uncertainty, right? Like, what are we missing that everyone else knows that we've somehow not found that proves that we're wrong, but also a sense of, oh my God, that we're, we're sort of unraveling this vast network of scholarship. Um, and we're pretty confident that we're right. Oh, I think the, the argument is ironclad. <laughs> I really do. Um, it's one of the most ironclad things I've ever written. Um, and it's, well, so we learned some lessons from writing this book, or, or there's some interesting takeaways. It, it is, I should say, a rather technical book. I mean, we get into the weeds about some aspects of late Roman law and administration and and these really weird documents. But those, I'm not going to talk about those here. But so let's talk a little bit about the lessons that we learned from this revision. So um, I mentioned one, uh, which is that basically you should follow the sources <laughs> and not the models that have been constructed um, on very tenuous evidence. In this particular case, the date of the notitia. We, we realized that this was like this unproven point on which the whole body of scholarship was resting. That not only that it was a 390s document, but that it remained in effect somehow, whatever kind of effect it, it had for over three centuries. No, two and a half centuries. Um, so that's one. What else? Uh, so I think for me, an important part is sort of believing your gut when things don't make sense, when explanations aren't adding up. And this is true, I think, with you and the narrative. The presidential armies just aren't showing up and they're supposed to be there. Um, but for me, it was the the prosopography and just how thin yeah. a lot of this stuff was. And then even later, looking at the data of the notitia, the the convolutions required to create this earlier date it's one of those things where it can be difficult especially when you're reading respected and established scholarship to to say you know you've you've made an argument but the argument doesn't prove the point that you're actually trying to make that's that's a, that's a yes. pretty big claim to make and it feels scary to make it especially when you're you know a junior scholar like i was and what you're reading is A.H.M. Jones, sort of in many ways the founder of later Roman studies in a lot of um, in the modern period, I would say. So there's that, but you, you got to kind of trust your gut here. And when so, for instance, when ridiculous things are happening to square the evidence. So uh, my favorite example is this um, this province called Macedonia Salutaris, which they have to postulate in order to keep the, the earlier date of the Notitia is created at a point we don't know, abolished 
and then later recreated, right? Um, so it's an entire history of a province that sort of comes into existence and goes away that I don't think ever existed, but is required to maintain the early date of the Notiti. When you start running into those kinds of convolutions, yes, be suspicious, trust your gut. Yes, and this province was supposedly abolished in that brief period simply because there is a source in that brief period which makes it clear that that province didn't exist. But the scholarship wants that province to have existed before and after that source, before because the Notitia says it existed, and the Notitia is an earlier document. And so based on the Notitia, we have this province pop into existence, then disappear because of a papal letter, then reappear again because it's attested in other sources. When the simplest explanation is simply to assume that the Notitia is reflecting a later situation. That's anyway. And yeah, that's exactly one of those situations where you have to where you have to trust your gut when you're saying this is more complicated than it needs to be. Right? And why do we want it this way? By the way, and uh, there are other reasons, you know, why the scholarship wants this earlier date, but What's also interesting is how different the military command structures of the Eastern and the Western empires are in the Notitia. And to assume that it's a document from 395 implies that when Theodosius was you know, planning for the future of the empire under his two sons, he devised completely different military structures for the East and the West for no particular reason. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's much makes much more sense to that what we're seeing in the document is the result of quite a few decades of divergent evolution as these two empires took separate paths. And actually, it turns out that the Western Empire was more conservative in its military structures, right? Um, it, it's reflecting fourth century um, a system of offices. And the Eastern Empire has this completely different way of you know, these five armies with different titles. It's like, that's a it's a renovated, you know, the new Roman Empire. <laughs> anyway, okay, so that's the book. Um, anything you want to add about the book before we move on to talking about revisionism in general? I think we've covered most of the, enough to get people interested in it. Yeah, maybe one more comment, and that is uh, don't be scared of masses of scholarship because Notitia Studies is a kind of subfield unto itself, and it has produced a tremendous amount of scholarship. But when you pick up any of it, you find that it goes back to a very narrow range of core arguments that people have just been rehearsing and assuming as they kind of build a superstructure. And we'll talk about this, I think, in the back half of the podcast as well. Oftentimes, scholarship will produce these sort of massive edifices of what we think we know on the basis of kind of weak premises. And just because a lot of scholarship exists doesn't mean all of it went back and looked at the premises. A lot of it, and this is natural for scholarship, there's no malpractice here. No malpractice, but maybe bad practice, maybe less than ideal practice. Um, a lot of scholarship will just assume that and then make the argument that it wants to make based on those set of assumptions. And it's rare that people kind of trace all the way back to the core. Uh, and in that vein, don't be don't be as scared of the German ubertome, because at the heart of this was yes. perhaps one of the most fantastical pieces of scholarship, like a thousand page, two volume German tome on the, the Comitatus field armies. That is the, the field armies that sort of traveled around uh, in late antiquity with emperors from which the presidential armies were drawn, whose arguments were just I won't go into the details here because it's too complex, but let's just yes. say that that like sometimes when you stare into a document that's a black hole like the Notitia, the darkness stares back. And that is what happened to this scholar, right? This scholar just sort of had to invent rules yeah. in order to make sense of this document and to square it with that early kind of 395 date. And this is one of the most important sources that sort of supports that conclusion. Yes. And we make the point that this is a case where this massive book with this written in this very stilted and turgid German prose from the 60s was acting as a deterrent for people to excavate the foundations of this theory. Because you look at this book and it's just it's very, very complex, intimidating. I remember I I went through the relevant parts of the argument. I could not understand 
what exactly the argument was. And I passed it to you and I'm like, Marion, can you make sense of this? I cannot understand what's going on. And you tried to figure out the rules that he was using to reconstruct the hypothetical stages of the late Roman army. Anyway, we don't need to get into it. But it was, I can understand why why people would not want to dive into this. It's not fun. And, and you're exactly right. It's fantastical. It's entirely from his imagination. Um, these rules about how the late Roman army worked. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's another lesson here. Um, if there's some big German book from the 60s that everybody is resting on, it's worth taking another look. Um, anyway, okay, so let's transition from the book uh, to just revisionism in general, because I would argue that this is a very revisionist book. Um, and moreover, I think it will be described that way. Like I suspect yeah. that in, in any book review, we will be given the label revisionist. Yes. And it's not a small, um, th there's a lot at stake in a way, because this is after all, let me redescribe what the topic of the book is. The organization of the Roman army at the time of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Now, the book is not primarily about the Western Empire, but this is a general topic that you know has received a fair amount of attention. And the fact that it's all resting on this document that has been wrongly dated is is kind of astounding. But okay, let's yeah, it's kind of revisionist. Um we'll uh, well maybe we'll classify it according to the various types of revisionism that we have here. So we've made some uh, rough lists here. Uh, but before we get to that, um, when you say that our book will be described as revisionist, um, is do I detect a note of concern that this might be a pejorative term? So this is this is tough for me because in my perception, and, and I don't have, I can't, I can't footnote this. But generally speaking, I get the sense that given the sort of inherent conservatism of um, scholarship, right? And you talked about this in some previous episodes with peer review and all that kind of stuff, right? There's a, there is a kind of inherent conservatism in the way that arguments change or consensus changes in scholarship. I generally see the term revisionist um, deployed to categorize things that are kind of out there, right? It, it's, it's another way sometimes it has the connotation of being fringe. Ah, fringe. Right. Uh, another term that doesn't actually have analytical value and sort of just describes it's like centrist. Right. It doesn't actually have a set of analytical um, commitments. It's just sort of relative to where everyone else is. This is where this argument is. Right. When I was growing up, centrist meant whatever the U.S. was doing politically. <laughs> um, so I, I've always understood revisionists to be kind of implicitly pejorative. Um, and in part, I think this is because there is something kind of threatening about revisionist scholarship. And this is true regardless of field. This isn't just a historical phenomenon. When consensus, especially about major topics, changes, there is something destabilizing about that. Um, you can see it in the sciences, right, where there's oftentimes back and forth over major questions, especially if they're related to industries like, is sugar bad for you, right? Um, is alcohol good for you? And you know, back and forth and back and forth. And Oftentimes, this is understood, especially to people who are not trained scientists, as evidence for a lack of rigor or sort of a flaw in the system. And I think something similar can be applied um, to historical revisionism. It's viewed as destabilizing, not just of what we understand the past to be, of the specific arguments being addressed, but of the authoritative claims of the field in and of itself. Like, how could you have gotten something this wrong? How could such a major change in consensus occur? And why should we have faith in it if the previous consensus was previously, you know, the consensus, right? Uh, right? The new consensus is undermined by the fact that it is a new consensus. How can we trust all of you people now that you're saying this, but for all those years you were saying that, and you seemed equally confident of both. Um, and so, yes, it does pose some questions about, um, you know, epistemology and how much trust should be put in experts about various things. Um, this is, now, this is inherent in scholarship and science. Like, this is part of the point. And to some degree, I think, like, the general public 
doesn't quite understand this. And we saw this during the pandemic, for example, right? When scientists are like, by virtue of being scientists, required to reevaluate their positions and change their positions in light of new evidence and new arguments and so forth. Like that's part of being a scientist. And I would argue also of a, of a historian. And it's not the case that we have all the answers to begin with. If we did, we wouldn't need to do research. Right. But I think that when we change our positions, it does. Yeah. You know, call into question the foundations of expertise on which we've been confidently saying things for, for so long. So it's a, it's, it's a kind of fine line that, that we have to walk. Um, and I can see how revisionism would acquire, um, a, um, kind of dangerous reputation in this context. But anyway, we're putting the arguments out there. Um, you know, we'll see what the field makes of it. So far, I think we're the only converts. No, no, no. I've, I've sent it to a few people who found it convincing, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, so anything else about revisionism and its kind of general aura? I would say just that in terms of history, there is a kind of pedagogical element here, I think, especially for non-professional historians. We oftentimes talk about history as something that you know, like that's the verb that we use rather than study. And I think that's an important distinction because especially in like high school where you're memorizing a lot of basic factual information, we tend to think of history as being more settled than it actually is, as sort of less contingent upon different interpretive frameworks than it actually is. Um, and this oftentimes lead to a, leads to a sense, in my experience, that a lot of people think that history is pretty easy and straightforward. You read the sources, you summarize them, that's kind of it. Um, and you see this in a lot of popular publications where people who are not professional historians will will feel like they can write historical works. Um, I'm not saying that they can't, but I'm not saying that it's, it's not as simple as just I read some sources and I'm summarizing those sources and that is what history is. Um, so I think it's important just to think about history as an ongoing process of study in the same way that science is. Yeah. And it's it's also important to understand how disciplines work. And I say this is important because it makes the process seem a lot less random than it might, especially to an outsider who, who you know, the Oracle saying this today and the Oracle is just saying something else the other day. Um, but if you understand even how the errors get made is a very important part of the revisionist argument. Like you have to be able to explain the other side or the traditional picture, like why has this held, right? Um, and that kind of disciplinary analysis, I think, is also important. Um, it's not something we focus on in the book, but just in general, when we do revisionism, it's, it's important to understand that because um, it, it's part of the self-knowledge of critical self-scrutiny like why are, why were we getting things wrong um like, like by the way as i was up to a year before we started writing this book right like i'm um, you know okay so okay so let's leave this um here as a kind of transitional uh, uh phase of the episode and why don't we just go into our different types of revisionism that we we, we so we've drawn up a sort of rough list of them and I think we'll uh, present them in order of kind of simplicity, like how easy they are to grasp. Um, or no, you're going to do that. And I'm going to interject with random things of mine. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah. So this is our, our kind of first stab at a taxonomy of revisions that hopefully will be helpful, not only for scholars, but also for people who want to know how the sausage is made and why, why there's a new book arguing something very different about what seemed like a settled or familiar topic. Um, and I'm going to start with one that I think is pretty easy because we've been talking about it this entire time, and that is the unsound premise revision, right? In other words, if a consensus has been founded upon a ten, uh, tentative or tendentious or even just, frankly, a bad faith premise, and a scholarly apparatus has been built up around that, when someone comes along and re-examines the sort of weak link in that chain of logic right at the foundation, the entire apparatus has to be thrown out when that when that sort of chain in the logical um, uh, sorry that when that link in the logical chain is knocked out. This is exactly what we are doing, right? This is in large part what our book is. The weak link being the dating of the notitia. You take that away. You look at the other evidence. 
everything reconfigures around that, right? Uh, the entire sort of apparatus of Notitia studies and a lot of other history built on it simply has to be reconsidered because it's not tenable in light of the broader evidence that we're looking at. Um, to give a sort of example from popular historiography, so this is something I'm going to try to do here is to give a, an example from sort of our field, but also something that people might be familiar with from broader historical discussions. An example of this would be the argument that the Civil War was about states' rights, right? This is a tendentious, bad faith argument that a large apparatus was built, cultural apparatus, right, was built on. And, you know, we haven't changed what the Civil War was about. We we have just been acknowledging that this is this is not a legitimate way of interpreting it. You take that away, all of a sudden we have to view it in a very different light. And I'll, I'll mention this in part because that was, you know, I grew up in Texas, that was how the civil war was taught to me oh. for a very, very long time. Right. Yeah. Okay. But that is a ba bad faith argument. Um, and the ones that we're dealing with here are not. And I would mention some others in the field of late Roman studies. For example, there was a scholar who specialized in this type of revisionism. This was Alan Cameron, um, who like his, he was an ambulance chaser in some, in some respects, he would just find bad arguments and sort of tenaciously go after them and demolish these houses of cards, right? It's the house of cards uh, metaphor that works best here. Um, and the classic case is the Circus Faction's book where he just kind of tore apart this superstructure of interpretation that had been built upon the entertainment guilds of the Hippodrome and, and theaters. Um, and anyway, it is it, really impressive what he did. But uh, some of his other books do the same sort of thing on Callimachus and uh, the last pagans of Rome and so forth. But the Circus Factions book is always just the most, uh, I, I just consider it a, a classic case of that kind of scholarship. Now, the thing is that it, I, I think there's a difference between our work and, and, and Cameron's, which is that we put in place a different interpretation like we have our own history that we put in place and i think cameron you know tended to more sort of tear tear things down and kind of leave leave a mess but anyway um okay good um give us a give us a next one and i'll do so it later yeah yeah the next one i have is the evaluative or perhaps the moralizing revision and this is really more a reflection of changes in our own society where the things that we value or the things that we are looking for in the past change in some way. And therefore we evaluate past societies slightly differently because we are emphasizing different things. So for instance, uh, traditionally the Roman Republic has been seen as a sort of high watermark of liberty and freedom. And then the later Roman period going to the Byzantine period is a period of Oriental despotism. Right. And this is a reflection of the perspective of a very narrow elite. And uh, that's, that made sense because the foundation of our discipline occurred in a social context that very you know, among people who identified with that elite. Right. Edward Gibbon thought of himself. He saw himself in the senators and that kind of class, not in the sort of the average person living in the Mediterranean. When you switch that perspective, as we have more recently, all of a sudden the liberty of the Roman Republic is very evidently built upon the violent conquest and enslavement of huge populations, right? Um, that liberty looks a lot more fragile and restrictive. Likewise, the so-called Oriental despotism looks a lot more shallow and performative. Yeah, you have proskinesis, but as a lot of your work, Anthony, has pointed out, you also have a really robust sense of a common project of Romania as a kind of common homeland and a shared uh, sort of state apparatus that that has obligations to the people that weren't there under the Republic, right? Especially not the late Republic, where basically it's these super generals running around doing whatever they can get away with. Yes, and I think that most of our readers would agree that these kinds of revisions, that is when we realize that our view of some part of the past is conditioned upon uh, you know, it, fundamental interpretive concepts like oriental despotism, just to give one, or race, right? That we have since discarded, but there's sometimes a lag time between discarding the poisonous concept and getting around to the job of fixing all the nonsense that was built upon that. Right. So it, it took a very long time for some fields to shed um, 
interpretations that were based on the concept of race, um, like in antiquity or the Middle Ages or whatever. And, and in some respects, they're still trying to do it, even when philosophically and in every other discipline, the concept of race was discredited very, very soon after World War II. Um, but but it, it just takes a while for these things to to work through the the, the process of scholarship. But so I, but I also want to mention some cases where this kind of revisionism, if indeed it's the same category as the one you mentioned, I find less persuasive. And this is revisionism by euphemism. So it's when you take something that used to be considered negative. And you kind of redescribe it in a way that makes it seem a bit less negative, but without actually changing much about the facts on the ground. And I'll give you one example that I'm not persuaded by. It's the it's revisionism in the sense of rehabilitating, not quote, the dark ages. Now, I'm not wedded to the term and its connotations. I don't, you know, particularly, you know, have have a uh, an opinion one way or another about this. But this attempt to kind of poo-poo or hand wave the disruptions to, let's say, civic life or whatever, or, or society in general that happened in the fall of the Western Empire in the 5th century or what happens to the Eastern Empire in the 7th as kind of, well, not that big a deal. And people carried on. And you use words like transformation, right, instead of what happened and you you don't talk so much about you know, wars and battles and you know these kinds of things and okay this is a very big story and we're not going to solve this problem right now right but i was thinking about this in 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 preparation for this podcast and i thought about it in the following way suppose you were to have a modern society where one part of the population lived the way people lived you know, before the fall of empire, let's say. And another part of the population, maybe a population with a different ethnic or racial, you know, profile, lived the way they lived after. It would be considered scandalous, right? The same scholars who talk about, oh, transformation, no big, nothing to see here, would be like outraged at the social injustices and so forth, the unequal treatment, right? Whatever. Why do these people have running water and those people don't, right? Why do they have roads and the others don't? Like, it would be a scandal. And so I, I find it disingenuous. I, I really do. When you see such massive demographic and economic collapse, and you don't call it for what it is. Anyway, that's just this is my way of thinking about why I, I find euphemism to be um, sort of unpersuasive. But anyway. Yeah. And so a, a sort of modern, more popular or widely accessible example of this would be the, the quote, civilizing mission of European imperialism, which has also in some yes. in some quarters been redescribed in exactly the way that you've talked yes. about it, how it's been justified. Well, okay, yes, imperialism bad, but also look at the steam engine and legal codes and all this kind of stuff. Right, um, right. And it also has that inertia where there is this, especially I think in sort of popular military histories, this ongoing glorification of imperial wars um, right, like the the age of fighting sail, right? Nelson and Trafalgar and all this kind of stuff. Um, it remains popular without having sort of been recontextualized as we've thrown away a lot of the uh, sort of structures that made it uh, made it worth valorizing, right? Yeah. All right, your next category. Uh, so this is the reevaluated evidence revision, and this is pretty straightforward, but it's something that tends to happen more in the weeds than in sort of a, a popular level. And this is when existing evidence is critiqued in a new way, or the relative weight given to different types of evidence is rebalanced, or even if sources are put into conversation with one another that previously hadn't been in discussion with one another. Um, so a great example of this in earlier Roman history is the rehabilitation of emperors like Nero and Domitian, who are traditionally classically bad emperors, only if you look at a very narrow set of primarily senatorial sources who are also carrying water for subsequent regimes that had a very vested interest in discrediting the last emperor of the previous regime. You'll, you'll notice this. The last emperor of a previous dynasty almost always ends up being a bad guy. And yeah. that's not coincidence, 
So as we've done things like bring popular perspectives back into the mix, looked at uh, things as simple as how long these guys were in power, right? Nero and Domitian reigned for relatively long periods of time, unlike someone like Caligula. Uh, we begin to think, well, maybe our sources are distorting here. We we think about Tacitus and Suetonius and our other sources. We critique them a bit more thoughtfully, and we begin to get a more balanced picture. And I think now there's a, a pretty significant number of scholars who view Nero as being not the best emperor, but certainly nothing like the monster he was made out, whereas Domitian is pretty clearly a good and effective emperor by all reasonable metrics. Yeah. Um, so that, that's an example of the, the reevaluated evidence revision. Right, which sometimes is called rehabilitation, right? Right. Like, what are you working on? Well, rehabilitation of Caligula. Been a, there have been a few of those. I'm not. I'm. I'm convinced about Domitian. I'm not so sure about Caligula. I think the, <laughs> I think he was a bit of a madman or a troll or whatever. Um, but yes, it's when we realize that we've been parroting or echoing a particular interpretation that comes from people who had an agenda at the time. Uh, and this does happen. And so reconfiguring our sources produces some very different pictures in this way. Um, so I'd like to mention a category. It's somewhat related to this, but it's um, actually, so I'm drawing inspiration um, from uh, a, another podcast host um, who is uh, Ezra Klein, uh, right? And and he wants, yeah, so he was an editor, I think in his former life at Vox. A website, a news website, and he he explained it in the following way. He says that there was a bunch of years when the, the articles that we were writing had the form that thing that you were thinking. It's totally not that thing. It's something completely different. <laughs> and they did that for enough time that eventually it became fashionable to write articles that were like. That thing that you were thinking, it's totally that thing. Yes, you're, you're totally right. And don't listen to all these other people who are telling you it's not, right? So this is the revision, the revisionism of revisionism, right? And of course, historians, we've been at it for enough time that, you know, certain views, certain revisions become established for a very, very long time. Now, some of these revisions always like to present themselves as like the underdog that's struggling to, you know, knock down some orthodoxy that has been knocked down and is dead. And in fact, buried and they're, they're tulips coming up from the grave, but we're continuing to pretend as if it's some mighty foe that needs to be slain. Right. Um, and in Byzantine studies, there are lots of these, like look at anybody who writes on the borders. Right? They will pretend as if everybody assumes that borders are these hard, fixed lines. Like, like if you went to the border, you would actually see a line drawn on the earth, right? And and that, no, it's not that. We know that these are fluid zones of interaction and so forth, right? And no one has ever maintained that view of Byzantine borders, at least since 1950. And yet, it's it's so tempting. Anyway... It's like the revision has incorporated within itself this stance of being the constant underdog. Okay, so there's that. Um, and I just actually wrote something to push against that uh, interpretation of borders. And they're not fluid zones of interaction, which is a meaningless phrase, but let's set that aside. Um, so I like revisions of revisions. So for example, I mentioned earlier the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Well, eventually you got, you know, a pushback and, you know, Peter's, Peter Heather's book, The Fall of the Roman, Roman Empire, um, is basically a revision of a revision. It's like, no, th this actually happened. There actually were barbarian armies. They actually did come in and carve off territories that they ruled and took the land. Like, yeah, these things happened. Why don't we pretend that they didn't happen, right? Um, and there are lots of those. Uh, and they keep Actually, I think in retrospect, like my Procopius book was one of these, right? Like Procop like there was a long time ago, Procopius was like, well, he seems to, like the whole kind of skeptical Procopius, the rational Procopius, that he doesn't buy into all of this stuff, right? And then the field switched and it was like, no, no, he's totally like everybody else, right? Like there's nothing, 
that you can describe here as philosophical or rational or skeptical. And he's just a man of his times. And I was like, well, no, actually, you remember that thing you used to think? It's it's that thing. It's more like that thing. Okay. So obviously, these positions are never the same when they're brought back, right? Uh, Heather's position is not the same as anything you would find, you know, in you know, whenever um, you know the traditional narrative held. And my Procopius is very different from anything in like what Rubin or you know whoever was writing in the fifties. Not that many people, uh, but it's an interesting category in itself. I think maybe by this point we've worked on everything so much that everything is bound to be a revision of a revision. Um, though not in our case, right? We right. So uh, looking at the history, and uh, maybe we didn't go. We didn't go back to like nineteenth century historiography. Really, I think the earliest thing we had was very early 20th century by J.B. Bury, who had proposed 437 as the date of the Notitia. But the consensus, you know, hardened shortly thereafter for a 395 date. Yeah, actually, scholarship on the late Roman army is a 20th century thing, really. So it's not like there was a deep background that we could we could pull some view out of the 18th century or whatever and, and bring it back. It's like, no, it's that thing. All right. Next category. Uh, real quick, I'll just mention sort of what a popular example of this looks like. Uh, and I think the the 1619 project is a great example of this where, mm, yes. you know, all, all the previous evidence exists, but now we're just going to take a look at this evidence that hasn't been given equal consideration. And we're going to reintegrate it into our picture of the history of the of America. And all of a sudden that history looks different just because we're giving equal weight or even slightly greater weight to neglected sources. Right. Yeah. And that's a great example of you know, from a historical perspective, whatever you think of the 1619 project, it is it is very standard historiographical revisionism. You just take a look at sources that haven't been treated seriously, bring them to the center of the story. I mean, that's something that we do all the time in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So my fourth category is the conceptual revision. And this is when a new or previously unapplied conceptual tool is used to tie together and interpret existing evidence. So the evidence is usually not contested. It's well known, oftentimes well documented, but it hasn't been put together in an interpretive framework, uh, or at least with this new interpretive framework previously. And here, actually, I'm just going to kick things over to you, Anthony, because you know this is something that you've, you've done a lot of in recent years in terms of thinking about both the Byzantine political system in the Byzantine Republic book and also the ethnicity of the Romans in Byzantium in Roman land. Yeah, so this is a case where all the evidence was there. It actually doesn't require, you have to read it, so that's a thing, but it's not like you have to go digging for it. Uh, it's not obscure. Um, it's not inherently controversial as to what it's saying or when it's dated or who wrote it or anything like that. And in other words, the evidence itself doesn't present any kinds of major problems. But the problem is entirely uh, stemming from the concepts that are brought to the, the system uh, of which that evidence is a part, right? So for example, for the Byzantine political sphere, I was struck in reading the sources at how often, for example, the people of Constantinople take an active role in political succession right, um, or um, religious controversies or whatever, and how often elites defer to them or court them. And, and that whole dynamic was missing from the scholarship entirely because of this, quote, elite model of politics that that the field had, um, it part, partly stemming from, you know, exactly what you mentioned earlier, the kind of elite European historians who identify with their counterparts in ancient societies and, you know, can't just bring themselves to believe that the, the, the hoi polloi would really have much to do with high politics. And that sees politics as a kind of game played among elites. Uh, this view, by the way, is very much alive uh, in, in many areas of historiography. It is by no means slain or whatever, right? Um, and, and you look at, wait a minute, like th there's, all, there's this and this and this and this and this. There's a pattern here. And so you realize, well, this pattern needs a model. 
right? I, I have to model this somehow. But in order to do that, you have to change the broader model, what I called earlier the system of which it's a part, right? Ditto for uh, Roman identity in these Byzantine texts. It's all there. It's not difficult to see what's going on. It becomes problematic only when you decide in advance that that it's not there or that it doesn't mean anything or you're not going to look at it or whatever cognitive dissonance, you know, people, you know, use to not see what's in front of them. And if you if you reorient yourself and no, wait, this is there and it requires a model. So you need a new concept for it. And this new concept then, you know, elbows for room with the alternatives that that, you know, have been crowding the field. And and so this is yeah I I, I find this a very challenging uh, that is rewarding uh, form of scholarship because it operates in a fairly big scale. This is what I like about it. Um, you're reinterpreting how political system work. You're reinterpreting you know the identity of lots of millions of people over the course of centuries, um, and you're doing so just by reading the sources and just looking at what's there. Um, also. It helps to have a uh, to be attuned to the blind spots in fields. It's not easy to to do that, but it can be done. Um, so th yeah, those are the two ways in which I practice this form of of uh, revisionism that you mentioned: blind spots and lots and lots and lots of data from the sources that that people don't have that my colleagues don't have a model for those. Right. And so I think um, it's hard to narrow down as like a single modern example. So I struggled to come up with one here. Maybe you have a, a thought that comes to you. But the closest I came is the way in which thinking about gender as distinct from biological sex and as a sort of performative, socially constructed way of being, right? There's masculinity, which is a cultural value that's constructed and reinforced in various ways, likewise with femininity, has you know, it's a conceptual framework that we can then apply very fruitfully to a range of different periods, you know, the ancient period, no less than any other. And so a lot of really interesting work has been done on the construction of gender. Likewise, the um, the history of sort of queer sexualities is a big sort of modern conceptual tool that we've been productively applying to the ancient and uh, Byzantine worlds. So th those are sort of broad categories. I don't have a specific uh, project or or problem that I can think of, unless there's one that occurs to you. Yeah, well, I mean, within my field, and it, it's interesting that you would mention gender because the case I had in mind was Leonora Nebel's book on Anna Komnini, the historian. Where, so if you've read the text, and even in translation, you realize that there's some really weird things going on in it. Um, like the way she alternates between describing battles and then lamenting some relative who died decades ago as if it were yesterday. Um, and you know, she's performing all these weird roles and it makes the text kind of odd. Anyway, uh, and Anna had a fairly negative reputation, um, you know, starting already soon after her own lifetime. And Anyway, to make a long story short, Leonora's analysis, like it finally fell into place. It's like, oh, I, I get it. This is someone who's caught between conflicting gender roles, like the masculine male, you know, military historian and her, the expectations on her to be a proper aristocratic matron or princess. And the, the gender roles in that society are conflicting when it comes to this. And she's trying to synthesize them so as to you know, uh, practice the virtues appropriate to each. And it kind of ends up in this kind of weird thing and opened her up to criticism, right? From those who would read her one role through the other and vice versa. Um, and it, yeah, that I, all of a sudden it, it kind of made sense. So I, I'm not left with this kind of like, I don't know what's going on in Anna. I think it, now I do. So that, that's another example of this, I think. Well, I think we've covered all of our categories. Yeah, unless you had any others that you wanted to to toss in. Oh, always. But we're already at the hour mark. There are various ways in which you know bad revisionism can be done. Um, I think the goal here was to to mostly sort of give a sense of yeah. why why we have legitimate shifts in historical thinking when you know these. And I should also stress here that these are not 
like uh, clearly distinct, mutually exclusive taxonomies. Almost any of these will require some mm. bit of the other, right? You don't get a conceptual revision without reevaluating evidence to some extent, right? Um, it's not really difficult. It's not really possible to have a conceptual revision without some kind of evaluative or moralizing revision as well. These things blend into each other. So we're sort of positing some ideal types here, but, yeah. but admitting sure. that they're going to blend together in practice. All right. I think that's a, that's a good place to wrap this up. Any final thoughts or like, what are you working on next? Oh, I mean, you know what I'm working on next because we're working on it together. So we, we have another military history book. We managed to write, and I think this is pretty unique because military history tends to sell pretty well, but we managed to write a military <laughs> history book that almost no one's going to buy. Uh, so our next project is to try and write a military history book that someone will like, besides professional scholars and libraries will actually be interested in reading. Yeah, Not to I'm dissuade you, if you're interested, like we, we do try to put a narrative together uh, so the, the book is sort of four chapters and four appendices. And for popular readers, stay clear of the appendices unless you really want to get into prosopography or the date of the notitia. But the four the four chapters are, are a bit more narrative and a little bit easier, I think, to actually to no, read. I, I think the four chapters are quite readable. We made them very clear. And they are a kind of narrative history of the organization of the East Roman field armies. I mean, it's not like, you know, the army went through this pass and the cavalry was on the right wing. No, it's not that. It's it's a history of the of, of military structures. But I think it's quite readable. OK, good. We should leave it at that. Uh, I take I understand you have to you're off to the airport. Right. Yeah, I'm heading out of town soon. So safe travels. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me back and letting me. Uh come onto the podcast so much and hijack it that one time. And thanks for writing this book. It was genuinely, especially post-COVID and COVID teaching, which was yeah. uh, as bad as everyone said it was, believe me, like it was the most exhausting and unpleasant thing imaginable. This was a palate cleanser. This was sort of a, a great reminder for me anyway, of why I wanted to be a scholar and like what was fun and worthwhile about this work. So uh, that was a great summer. It was a ton of fun writing the book. Um, and I, I hope people like reading.